Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Father, as we contemplate these words of our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would remind us and draw us deeper into the state of blessedness that Christ has proclaimed for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue to reflect on and think about these words of Jesus. I want you to remember an event later on in the ministry of Jesus when he relates uh, a different teaching, which is his parable of the Good Samaritan. I want you to think especially about how that comes about, how it is that Jesus comes to share that story. If you remember, it's a lawyer who starts the ball rolling. This lawyer comes to Jesus, and we're told he's a man who's seeking to justify himself and his action. He asks Jesus how to have eternal life, already in his mind having a sense that he knows the answer. So he answers the question when Jesus turns it back on him, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. And he quotes this, Jesus, of course, agrees with him and says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. And it's at that moment that the lawyer says, okay, yeah, but, but who is my neighbor? And looks for the technicality that leads Jesus to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And you remember the story, of course, the, the man who is waylaid by robbers, whose body broken Wounded is passed over by people who you would have every expectation would show him mercy. Instead, he has to rely on the goodness of a Samaritan, of a foreigner, an outsider. Remember the story, but do you remember the moral of the story, the conclusion? When we come out of the story again and Jesus applies that story, when he asks the lawyer which of these men was his neighbor, the answer the lawyer gives is the one who showed him mercy. The one who was merciful, the one who showed him mercy, was his neighbor. And once again, Jesus agrees, and he says, you go and do likewise. This is what you should do. If, as we contemplate the Beatitudes, in the first four Beatitudes, we can relate to the state of being that is described, if poor, grieving, meek, and hungry is who we are, then what we find here, merciful, pure, peaceful, and persecuted, that's what we do. With the words of Jesus in our mind, do this and you will live. We come across these beatitudes and inevitably our thoughts shift from what we are to what we are called to do, how we are called to live. Now, as we've been studying the beatitudes, I promised you that this shift would take place, that we would get to doing but before that, we were going to think about being for a little bit. Well, now we're, we're making 
that shift with the second set of four Beatitudes. We're here. We're thinking about what it means to do what we've been called to do. Because here Jesus points what we should do, how we should actually live our lives in order to live. Just do this and you will live. But whenever we think about doing, whenever we think about what we're called to do, it's important to think in a certain context, to keep some qualifiers in mind, or use a different word, to keep some guardrails in mind, because Scripture interprets Scripture. And when it comes to doing, the Bible in other places teaches us how to think about what we're called to do. So there's a couple of things I want you to keep in mind as we contemplate what we ought to do. Uh, The first guardrail is this. All of the doing in the Christian life is built on and flows from what Christ has already done. All of our doing flows from what he has already done. The doing is based on the done. And we never contemplate what we've been called to do without first thinking of and starting with what Christ has already done. We'll talk more about that. But here's the second qualifier, another thing to keep in mind. All of the doing, whether it's obvious or not at first, all of the doing that Christ calls us to is specifically what we might call doing towards others. Doing towards others is what we've been called to do. What we are to do for others. What we are to do to others that matters most. Not what we are to do for ourselves. Doing toward others is the orientation of all doing that Christ has called us to. So with those two things in mind, and we'll elaborate on them as we go forward, with those qualifiers, I want us to think about what we've been called to do. In other words, how to do mercy, how to do purity, how do you do peace, how do you do persecution? Because these are the things that Christ calls blessed, the people who do these things are blessed, are happy. Of course, doing mercy, nothing new in the days of Jesus. All of the Old Testament prophets had spoken in similar terms to what Jesus is saying here. Maybe the most famous example would be the prophet Micah. You look at Micah chapter 6, verse 8, you find those famous words where God has called us to love kindness or love mercy, but there's a context. Read in Micah 6, starting with verse 6, you'll see this contrast. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy? Walk humbly with your God. There is no sacrifice that we can make. There is no act of outward piety that is as pleasing to God. There's no comparison, in fact, between those acts and what God has actually called us to do, which is to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. One of the books that I've been leaning on heavily as we've studied through the Beatitudes. It's Sinclair Ferguson's little book on the Sermon on the Mount. And he gives an interesting 
definition of mercy here that I think is helpful because we often think of mercy as just a synonym of kindness, but it's something more than that, a little more specific. He writes that mercy is kindness directed at relieving the consequences of sin in the lives of others, both sinners and those sinned against. Mercy is kindness, but it's a kindness directed towards relieving the consequences of sin, of undoing, of pushing back against the consequences of sin, not only on the part of those who have committed sin, but also on the part of those who have suffered as a result of it. Bringing that kind of kindness into the lives of others, that's what mercy is. So mercy, by definition, is shown toward those who haven't earned it. It's a kindness that is shown towards those who don't deserve it, who might, in fact, have brought their suffering upon themselves. And yet we're called to be merciful towards them. And that mercy has a source. The Bible teaches that mercy flows from a consciousness of the mercy that is shown toward us. Right? Jesus makes this point a number of times. But you think of the parable of the unforgiving servant later on in Matthew, in Matthew 18. Right? When that servant is rebuked because although he's been forgiven a great debt, he won't forgive a small one. His master says, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That absence of mercy, or you might think of it as mercilessness, is in fact an attribute of the unforgiven. In the book of Proverbs, we read, Proverbs 21, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. The absence of mercy demonstrates an absence of forgiveness. Because from a sense of forgiveness, all mercy flows. That's why Ferguson writes that showing mercy to the poor and needy is a touchstone and hallmark of a true conversion to Christ. How is it that we claim to be Christians yet show so little mercy? We're called to be merciful. If we've received mercy, if we've been forgiven, then we of all people must forgive those who don't deserve it. We must show mercy to those who brought it upon themselves. That's what it means to do mercy. What about purity? How do you do purity? Well, the psalmist equates purity of heart with righteousness. If you look in Psalm 24, you read these words. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Now that phrase, lift up his soul to what is false, is specifically talking about idolatry. Ezekiel puts it this way. He, he calls it lifting up your eye to idols. So purity of heart is a worship of God alone, a single-minded Focus on God alone. That's why James, James chapter 4, calls us to purify our hearts. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-mindedness is a characteristic of impurity of heart. So to purify your heart, you must be single-minded, focused on the worship of God alone. That's why Soren Kierkegaard called purity of heart this. He said, purity of heart is to will one thing. 
It's a kind of simplicity, a focus on God alone, to will one thing, to will him alone. And yet, even here, as internal as that sounds, Calvin in his commentary points out that this is an outward act. The purity of heart is not just something that we do within ourselves. It is something that we do toward others. It's it's an absence of deception towards others. It's an honesty, an honest confession of a true faith. Simple fidelity lived before the eyes of the world. That's how we do purity, by focusing on God alone. We do peace in a similar way. Peacemaking that is praised here is, of course, much more than just bringing wars to an end. Because peace in Scripture is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is not an absence, it's a presence. Peace in Scripture is shalom, it's wholeness. And so to make peace is to make wholeness, not just to stop conflict, but to repair the wounds that that conflict has created. Calvin says Christ says that those are happy who are not only prepared to endure their own afflictions, but to take a share in the afflictions of others, who assist the wretched, who willingly take part with those who are in distress, who clothe themselves, as it were, with the same afflictions, that they may be more readily disposed to render them assistance. The peacemakers are the ones who don't just bring an end to conflict, but who take upon themselves the afflictions of others, who build wholeness. Where, where you are damaged, I feel damaged too. We want to work to rebuild what has been lost. Making peace between others exemplifies the willingness to take their concerns and make them your own. When it comes to doing persecution, I'll have more to say about this next time because Jesus will elaborate. But for now, let's just say this. Those who love righteousness so much that they're willing to suffer for it are blessed. That's the the nature of the commitment to righteousness. Those who are so committed, who love it so much that they'd rather suffer for it than give it up, they are blessed. There's no masochistic desire here for persecution. It's not that people go out wanting to be persecuted. It's simply a willingness to endure regardless. Whether I'm persecuted or not, I will be faithful or to quote Henry V, at least according to Shakespeare, we would not seek a battle as we are, or as we are, we say we will not shun it. We don't seek persecution, but we won't stop because of it, because we love righteousness. Too much to do that. But remember those qualifiers that we talked about earlier. As you think about how to do these things, you've got to keep those guardrails in mind. Otherwise, we turn Jesus into just another moralistic preacher, just another guy telling you what stuff you need to do so that God will be pleased. But remember, doing towards others is the focus, not doing towards self. This isn't about how to make ourselves look good in the eyes of God. This is about what to do to others. The logic of the golden rule 
But it's the golden rule understood a certain way. It's not a quid in search of a pro quo. It's not being good to other people in the hope that they will also be good to you. But it's an orientation of love towards our neighbors. That when we love our neighbors, we are doing what we ought to do. A person's blessedness, a person's happiness, in other words, is discerned or known. Not through their internal emotional state, through their expression, not by how happy they seem. The way that you know that a person is happy or blessed is from their doing toward otherness. It's how they treat others. It's how they love their neighbors that tells us whether or not they are happy, whether or not they are blessed. Luke 7, we have the story of Jesus' anointing, by a woman who's described in the text as a sinful woman. It's a great way to go down in history, biblical history, trying to keep all of the characters separate. Oh, that's the sinful woman that you're talking about. But her story is glorious, right? She's the one not invited to the party who, who comes in on the Pharisees' banquet and in the middle of everything anoints Jesus, which must have been awkward for those who had not bothered for those who had invited him as a great rabbi, but hadn't bothered to show him hospitality, who expected him to be grateful to be at the table. To have this woman intrude in was uh, tough for them. There's a moment in uh, a new favorite movie of mine, Akira Kurosawa's movie, Ikaru, where this, this guy who, this is going to sound so strange, but it, it's, it's a Japanese movie the, the, the plot is basically the plot of Parks and Recreation, only it's, it's, it's super serious. Uh, this guy who's dying of cancer is restoring a park, a public park, for these mothers whose children are getting sick because of all of the, the, the malarial mosquitoes in the area. And he, spoiler alert, dies. And, uh, and half of the movie is his funeral. And his family and his colleagues were all sitting around essentially congratulating themselves on, on various things until the women he has served come in. And everyone has been sort of soberly sitting around doing honor to one another. But when the women who, who received the park come in, they are wailing and weeping before his grave in a way that makes everybody else really uncomfortable and, and leads them to kind of look down their nose as these must have looked down their nose at this woman. But Jesus explains her actions this way. He says the reason she's behaving, the way that she's behaving is because of her forgiveness. He says her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And then he adds this, that he who is forgiven little loves little. And I doubt there were many people at the table wondering, who does he mean? He meant you. He meant the ones who didn't show the love only professed it with their mouths. There's a contrast here between the sinner who lovingly does toward Christ and the Pharisee who shows him no hospitality. One of them is doing what Christ has called us to do, and the other is not. The irony is, If we were asking ourselves, which of the two would we model ourselves on if we wanted to be good, pious people? The answer in most cases would be the Pharisee. So the doing 
is based on and flows from Christ's doing. She does what she does because she's been forgiven much. That's the thing we have to hold on to and cling to. Our doing flows from Christ's done. When Augustine interprets the parable of the Good Samaritan, he says it's an allegory of Christ. He says Jesus is telling this story, and we're meant to understand that the Good Samaritan in the story is, in fact, Jesus, because Jesus is the outsider who binds the wounds of the sinner that the religious authorities have just callously passed by. Jesus is the one who stops. There was no one gentler with a bruised reed. And Jesus, I think the Beatitudes themselves, although they're not an allegory, certainly paint a picture of Christ in the same way. I mean, who showed mercy if not Christ? Who loved much if not the Lord Jesus? Jesus, who was pure in heart, always single-minded in his devotion to the Father, to God alone. It was Jesus who was the great peacemaker, Paul says in Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Of course, no one endured faithfully when persecuted for righteousness sake. Jesus, Jesus's life and death and resurrection were a story of endurance in the face of rejection. So in all our doing, all we're doing is imitating Christ. We're just imitating what Christ has already done. And that's what being conformed to his image means. It's what walking with him means or being sanctified. All of these are just synonyms for copying him, doing what he did to the best of our ability. We strive to show mercy the way that he did. We strive to love God wholeheartedly the way that he did. We pursue peace and wholeness the way that he did. We endure faithfully the way that he did. We do it the way that he did. And we're only able to do it because he did. Because he has already done it. Our happiness, our blessedness is received as we follow him. That's the point. Those who follow Christ in gratitude for what he has done are blessed. The blessedness that these Beatitudes pronounced are received by those who follow in his footsteps, who do what he did in imitation of him. We show mercy, we receive mercy. We worship wholeheartedly, we see God. We practice peace, we are called God's children. As we endure faithfully, the kingdom is ours. It's never because we do these things that we earn the kingdom, because the kingdom cannot be earned, only received. That it's this. As we follow Jesus, we know ourselves to be poor, grieving, meek, and hungry. As we follow Jesus, he's making us into people. Do what he has done. He makes us merciful and pure, peaceful and faithful when persecuted. All the glory is for him. Thank you for listening. 
You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.